This is Matt Brown, and you're listening to Just a Good Conversation. For almost 50 years, Jim Colton has been looking at some of the best photos in the world. He started out at the Associated Press before moving on to Newsweek magazine as a senior photo editor for International News. A three-year stop at SEPA Press before heading back to Newsweek to run the photo department. Well, let's not forget those 15 wonderful years at Sports Illustrated. Mr. Colton has been one blessed person slash photo editor. As soon as the things get thrown off the truck and onto the newsstands, I'm there waiting for it, and I'm buying Newsweek, Time, and U.S. News and World Report just to see whose ass got kicked. And that's that's how we roll. I mean, that's that was the exciting part, you know, seeing all of our work, hard work in print, and knowing that other people are, are getting to enjoy that as well. I'm Matt Brown, host of Just a Good Conversation. Take a listen to our archives. My guests have ranged from Emmy winners Olympic gold medal winners, and small business owner, John Benton. It was like all the other cars were like I was dating. And maybe I had some puppy love here and there. But I fell in love with that car. I fell in love with that car. It, it did everything I wanted to do. And once I got it sorted, it just would do it without failure. Um, I ran a lot of cars to failure and a lot of different things to failure. I just really liked that combination. Go to justagoodconversation.com for all our archives. Let's take a quick break for a sponsor before diving into my conversation with Jim Colton. I am so happy that I have the wonderful and talented and super nice human being, Jim Colton, with me today. How are you, Jim? I'm good. Thank you, Matt. What is, uh, what's the newest thing on your plate? How's uh, everything going? Uh, it's all going well. Um, you know, the, the newest thing on my plate is what's going on right now, you know, in Ukraine, um, which is one of the saddest things I think I've seen in, in a long time. And I've, I've seen a lot of stuff. Um, the images that are coming out of there are just like brutal. Um, so it's a that's what I've been working on um, on a daily basis. So that's a that's a tough part. But uh, on the light side, um, earlier, you know, last month we had the Winter Olympics, which also produced uh, a lot of great images as well. I just uh, published um, a uh, thing that I do for Zuma Press called the Pictures of the Month. Uh, and if anybody wants to look that up, uh, it's pretty simple. The Pictures of the Month dot com. <laughs> um, and uh what I get to do is I get to go through the literally tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of images that come into the Zuma Press um, ingest uh, and edit that down to, let's say, 60 to 100 pictures and then uh, edit the uh, crop tone sequence and then put it to, to a, uh, an original score and keep it under four minutes so we don't lose people's attention. And this particular month was very strong, meaning month of February. So I reduced that to only uh, Ukraine uh, and the Olympics. So it's kind of an interesting show with the dichotomy of of war and sports. But um, it's a good example of how photography can be equally as powerful in a journalistic sense as well as a sports sense. So um, I just finished that, published it uh, Today is what the fourth, so yeah. two or three days ago, uh, and that's online right now. If anybody wants to go look at that, so um, that's what's been keeping me busy lately. Um, and God knows there's enough stuff going on. Uh, 
on a daily basis, news-wise, to keep anybody busy. That has been quite an interesting 30 days. If you talk about having the Olympics and now at the end of February going into March, having one country invade another on such a global scale like this. I mean, what a 30-day pitcher story. Yeah, no, um, you know, we, I, I've been doing the pictures of the month for Zuma for about six years now. Uh, so there's a pretty good archive, you know, if you wanted to go back and look at other months that were not quite as traumatic. But um, when you look at those months, you you see everything that happened that month, which includes things like Super Bowls and, and um, you know, whatever sports and features and fashion and entertainment and climate change and, you know, animals and insects and nature and weather. Uh, so it's a lot of different genres uh, wrapped into one month. And actually, literally, we're talking of just shy of a million pictures every month that uh, comes into our system. Uh, and I do go through almost all of them. Um, and it's, it, it's, a, it's a labor of love. Uh, but I do that on a daily basis so that at the end of the month, it's easier to call uh, because I'm working with the selects that I've made on a daily basis through that month. Um, and then the fun part is sequencing it. Um, you know, certain months, there are more important things. And sometimes there's just not so, you know, so many breaking news stories that you can lead with a terrific steeplechase horse racing picture or something like that. And then work your way into some other cool stuff and then exit with a, you know, a, a rainbow over a lighthouse, uh, um, whatever tickles my fancy. Um, <laughs> but it's a lot of fun to put together. Um, and it's a, it's kind of a, you know, my pet project, um, that I do for Zuma. That's, that's a hell of a project. That's fun. Yeah, it is. Um, I, I, you know, I, I like that one project, but you know, I, I do work for them on a daily basis. Right. So, um, every day I'm up at, uh, you know, seven o'clock in the morning because I can look at everything that's been produced in, in Europe and Asia. Uh, so by the time I wake up and start looking at the pictures, I've already got most of what's going on over there um, before anything starts happening here in the United States. But then I'll finish around noon or one o'clock and I'll be able to get, you know, some uh, production from from the States uh, into the edit. And I'll put up um, anywhere from, you know, 15 to 40 pictures on their pictures of the day site. Um, and then I'll put up a selection of 10 to 15 of the best pictures from um, all over the world onto their Instagram site. So I do that every day. Um, and that's my, you know, uh, daily, um, dose of visual caffeine. Um, (laughs) and you know, I, I, I love doing it. I, you know, I think we talked earlier before we were on saying that to me, photo editing is really uh, a treasure hunt. And uh, I'm just looking for gems. And then if I can find them, I, I get them published. And hopefully, hopefully other people can enjoy those gems. Um, and, and that's what, you know, photo editing is about. It's uh, one of many things that it's about. But on the strictly on the visual side, it's, it's you know, plowing through the chaff. Um, we are now in a state where we're being bombarded, uh, visually bombarded with with literally millions of images a day that are coming in from everywhere. And we don't have filters anymore. Um, There used to be a day when, you know, editors would be able to whack that 
crap down and and put out what's worth seeing. But now it's like a fire hose. Um, and now that everybody has an iPhone and thinks they're a professional photographer, they're posting everything up without any vetting, you know, without any information, without any you know, knowledge of what they're doing other than, then, you know, posting their, their favorite breakfast that they just shot or whatever. <laughs> and we're, we're, we're just getting bombarded with visual imagery. And the, the downside of that is that it's, it's getting harder and harder to find uh, the things that are relevant and things that are true, uh, factual um, and important because just, there's just so much stuff that we have to wade through. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing how easy it is to take a photo now and with the ability of everybody taking them, they're everywhere, absolutely yeah. everywhere. Yeah. yeah. So let's let's go back to the time machine, go way back. Where did, <laughs> yep, where, where did uh, young Jim grow up? All right. Well, it's, it's, um, this is kind of like a, a love story. Um, my father, uh, William James Sandy Colton, uh, was in the armed forces and, uh, met my mother, Sanai Yamazaki, uh, in Japan where they both worked for the Stars and Stripes newspaper, which is a military newspaper. And my mom was a board artist and my dad was a photographer, um, and they met and got married, and I was born uh, in Tokyo um, many, many years ago um, and grew up there uh, for the first seven years of my life. Um, had a first grader's vocabulary of Japanese, which I totally lost when I came here, which was, I really, <laughs> really regret. Um, and then we lived in the United States, um, moving from Tokyo to Queens, New York. Um, oh, that's dad... close. That's almost identical. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, where my dad worked for the Associated Press and eventually became their director of photography. And my mom worked uh, for Seventeen Magazine and other Time Warner magazines as an art director before she retired as the art director for People Magazine. Uh, so genetically is why I wound up in the business when people ask me, um, how could I not with, with genes like that? Right. Um, it would be, it would be pretty odd if all of a sudden you're like, no, I want to be in a rock band. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, the rock band didn't work out too good for me. Um, you know, I, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I was, you know, when I went to high school, I wanted to be a potter. I actually, uh, in those days you could choose a major, in your senior year in high school, and I chose ceramics. Um, so I had six periods of ceramics, one period of English and one period of gym, I think it was you had to do that. And then I applied to Alfred University to try to become a potter. But my grades sucked, uh, so I didn't get in. Um, so I decided, you know, just go for a liberal arts degree. Uh, and I just figured I'd just start working. So I, I right out of high school, went to work um, – at a place called Kershan's Color Lab in New York City, uh, and learn how to read color negatives and learn how to make how to print. Um, this is back in the days of film. Um, and then a position opened up, uh, thanks to my dad, I'm sure, uh, in the photo library at the Associated Press. So I became a researcher there. Did that for a couple of years. 
while I went to Manhattan Community College and got my degree at the same time, working full time, going to school full time. But that's what you did back then. That's what you did. Yeah. And um, then uh, wound up being their color picture editor because I knew how to read color negative, which was a specialty back then um, and did that for a couple of years. Um, and since I was the color picture editor, I was supplying places like Time Magazine and Newsweek Magazine with with color because um, those magazines were just starting to do color uh, back in 1974, 75, something like that. Um, and I provided Time Magazine with a headshot of uh, a woman named Squeaky Frome, and people can Google that, who was the person <laughs> that tried to assassinate Gerald Ford. And we happened to have a color picture of her. I remembered uh, that we had a file called Manson Girls in the color library. So I went up and looked, and I'm looking through color negative with a, with a loop, found two frames of who I thought this girl was, and it turned out it was. Um, lying in the library uh, at 50 Rockefeller Center on the day that he she tried to kill this guy. So I sent one negative to Time Magazine, one negative to... Newsweek and Time Magazine ran it on their cover in 19, I'm going to say 70, again, whoever's Googling right. Squeaky from look that up. I think it's, I'm going to say 75, 76, something like that. Right. Um, yeah. That, I think that's when that happened, right? When the assassination attempt. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, yeah. so that, um, the people at Newsweek remembered that because, you know, I supplied Time Magazine, their competition with, with the, a cover that beat them, even though they had this same opportunity. So they hired me. <laughs> <laughs> really? Um, off of that? That was such an Off of that. Um, wow. Yeah. Well, actually they, not just off of that. Right. Um, but it's, I, but I, I had been, I had been supplying Newsweek with, with material over the year and, and I got to know people over there. And since they were just starting to do more color, they needed somebody that could read color negative as well and help them out on that. So they hired me in 1977. Um, and I wound up working for them for a combination of 17 years, um, 11 years in the beginning, um, went off to run a photo agency called SEPA Press for three years in between, um, came back as their director of photography for the last of the 17 years uh, before going off to. How, how was that all of a sudden now you're running that photo department? Yeah, well, you know, um, I'm throwing out all these numbers like it's nothing, but it's it's a career, right? Um, yeah, you know, from I mean, 70, 77, add seventeen years. It's what eighty-seven and ninety-four through ninety-four. I mean, the seventeen years of my life where I grew uh, and learned uh, and 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 changed and developed and um, well, you, know, like, became, you probably learned everything from management skills, leadership. You know, exactly. what makes a good photo? The time was changing. Like, you know, yeah. the way yeah. we shot in the late 70s to the 80s and into the 90s. Sure. Everything. I mean, I, I started, you know, as I said, at the wires where, you know, it was a one shot deal. You go out there, you know, with your one roll of film, you shoot two or three assignments on that one roll of film. And you, you, you know, put up the one picture. That's all you need mm -hmm. onto the network and you move on. Um, and you know that from that you go over to the newspaper to the newspaper world where you have a little bit more flexibility and you get to shoot a little bit more and hopefully they'll publish a little bit more but then you go to the magazine world where your deadline is not quite as severe as a, as a daily uh, or as an hourly or minute by minute by at, at one of the wire services right 
So, you know, I transited from, you know, every breathing was the deadline at the AP. <laughs> yeah. Um, going to Newsweek, uh, where it was a weekly. That must have been unbelievably refreshing to have a week. It, it was, you know, yeah. I mean, you had more time to work on stuff, but, but you know, when it came down to deadlines, it, it didn't matter. It, it, you know, because they, they closed on Saturday, printed on Sunday, and the magazine was out on Monday. So if you had a major breaking story on Saturday, you had to, you know, it's almost like working for the wires. You, right. you have to come up with something that's printable uh, and then it has to get printed and then onto the newsstands and into people's mailboxes by Monday. So there were a lot of times where we crashed stuff um, on, on the weekends just because we had to. Um, wow. So, you know, even even though there was a, you know, more time because you have a week to, to work on stuff, you know, if something happened on deadline day and you got to remember, this is pre-digital. Yes. Right? So yeah. This, then pre-cell phones and pre-internet. And so we, we had things like we worked with telexes, right? Right. Uh, and phone calls. Uh, and uh, and we, when we had to transmit something in those days, it was making a separation print, three, magenta, cyan, and yellow. And you put it on a drum and you use a conventional phone line and it scans the drum and each print takes seven to 10 minutes. So one color picture would take you half an hour. Mm -hmm. And then if somebody sneezed, you get a hit in it and you'd have to transmit that plate again. And, and, you know, imagine what you can do now in a half an hour, how many pictures can you can transmit the entire library of Congress in half an hour? You know, it's, it's crazy. So yeah, we, we transited through a very difficult time dealing with deadlines. Uh, But it was an exciting time. Um, And we had to figure out how we, how do we cover stuff? that's scheduled to happen on a Saturday, knowing that we need to get it into the magazine. So it's printed and in people's mailboxes, you know, or on the newsstands on Monday. So we did crazy things like, you know, um, during the Pope's visit to Poland, I would fly to Poland and work out a schedule where the photographers would shoot whatever needed to be shot. We put it on a Learjet and fly it into London where I would process it overnight, you know, make my edit, get on the Concorde, physically carrying the film back to New York, which I did seven times because it was flying backwards and beating time. Right. I mean, you know, the hourly time, not time magazine. But, right. And, and we would do things like that, knowing this is the parameters that we have to work with. Now, and it would, let, let's like with just that idea, let's, let's break that down. Like where do you guys sit there and go, okay, we need to get a picture of the Pope in Poland this is going to cost X. What is it worth? Like if it's going to cost us 30 grand, 40 grand, a hundred grand, at what point do you start to say, okay, it's not worth to get that photo on a Saturday? Yeah. Well, well, that's when you have to rely on the uh, whims and deep pockets of the editor in chief who has to decide, yes, it's worth having, a picture of the Pope kissing the ground when he gets back into Poland for the first time. And even though it costs us $300,000 when everything is said and done, mm-hmm. um, you know, and he'll either say yes or, or no, depending on, you know, how valuable he thinks that story is, because it's not just pictures. It's also sending correspondents who have to file and, <laughs> and you know, it's, it's everything. It's a whole nine yards, you know, um, and then things have to be designed. And, and laid out and paginated and transmitted and printed and all that. So, and if you're pushing deadlines and you're pushing, you know, um, things that come in and, and get ripped up on a Sunday, 
which happened many, many times. Those are all questions that the editor-in-chief has to make up in his mind as to whether it's worth it or not. There's and, a lot um, of praying going on. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> but that, that was that was how it was back then. That's how we rolled, you know. Did um, you did yeah. you realize it's that kind of chaos? I mean, we talk about it now. We're sitting in our chairs thinking about. Did you realize that's kind of working in a hurricane? Yes, uh, but we all we we jumped into it. We volunteered. We we went in head first because that's what we did and that's what we loved doing, and we loved kicking each other's ass. Right. Um, in those days, you know, you know, I talked about the schedule, right? So everybody knows that time is working on the same stories that we're working on and, mm -hmm. and Newsweek is working on it. And U.S. News and World is working on it. And everybody's working on it. And they all have the same printing schedule. They all print on Sunday. And there's a magazine on the stand every Monday. So what do we do on Monday? As soon as the things get thrown off the truck and onto the newsstands, I'm there waiting for it. And I'm buying Newsweek, Time and U.S. News and World Report just to see whose ass got kicked. And that's, that's how we rolled. I mean, that's, that was the exciting part, you know, seeing all of our work, hard work in print and knowing that other people are, are getting to enjoy that as well, you know. So that's what drove us. And, and, you know, there was never any question about, I mean, we're talking about it, you know, 30, 40 years later, but there was never any question about it at the time. That's what you did because that's what we were. We were journalists. We're photojournalists. We're photographers. We're editors. We're writers. We're, and we have to cover the stories and, and, and get the best work uh, into the magazine as possible. That, that, was, that was our job. Was, it, um, was so, it an adrenaline rush? Like when there was big assignments, when you're on the Concord coming back and you got a roll of film, like is that as close to a drug for you? On that kind of <laughs> no, um, I think we talked about this before we were on the air. T to me, the the rush was the Christmas every Monday morning. You know, you opened up the magazine and you got to see your work. That was the rush. You know, um, to see it published and knowing that you know you worked on that story. Right. You took that photograph. You edited that work. You got it onto the cover. You somehow managed to get that picture that was taken on Sunday morning. In Bitburg, Germany, of Reagan, you know, laying the wreath on the tomb of the unknown soldier onto the cover of the magazine on Monday. And how does that work? And how did you do it? And that's what we did, you know. And so seeing it was the rush, the the having to to you know coordinate Lear jets and photographers and motorcycles and and Concords and labs and and all of that. That was all part of the job. The rush came on Monday, you wow. know, to see, you know, how you did. And we got our asses kicked as well. You know, sure. we, we, you know, we didn't win every week. No. Um, I think we were quoted as giving time, uh, you know, was it, uh, one of the photo magazines, you know, like did a synopsis of time in Newsweek. And, and Newsweek was like a mass unit. And time was like a hospital. Time was much, much, much more sterile, much more, more money, much more official, you know, whatever. And they had more money. Right. Music had a third of their budget, but we were, you know, a rough crowd and we, we got the job done and we did it for less most, most of the time. So, and we did it on the fly. So we were like the mash unit, you know, which I thought was kind of cool. Yeah. Um, you know, who's, yeah. <laughs> that's so funny you say that. Cause 
uh, I remember once having dinner with P.F. Bentley, and he said the same kind of thing. Like, he wouldn't have traded his time at Newsweek to go anywhere else because he just loved that camaraderie that you guys had at the time, that it was yeah. just that craziness and just going for it all the time and battling yeah. time. Yeah, there was a guy uh, that ran the place by the name of Jim Kenny. He was a, a you know, gravel-voiced, very jocular Irishman um, <laughs> who – drank a lot of beer and he was the he was the photo editor they didn't call it the director of photography back then he was the mm-hmm. photo editor mm-hmm. uh, you know tough guy straight shooter no bs and then he had his deputy john whalen another irishman about the same size um and he treated the both of them treated the entire department like family you know so our problem was his problem you know how do we solve it uh and we would do anything for them and and they would do anything for us and they protected us as well, you know, but they also shared in the, in the good times and the bad times. And there were, there were equally amounts of both. Um, but we did it as a family, you know, and um, I tell this story that, um, you know, I was doing the international section at the time. So it wouldn't be unusual for me to have to fly off to some God awful place, you know, and try to work out some coordinated, you know, effort to get something done. So, um, you know, I'm sitting in the editor's office, one of the foreign editor's office, and Jim Cunny Kenny comes walking into the office in his very growly voice and says, Colt. I said, I said, yeah. He says, you're going to Grenada. I said, okay. So what happened was that the U.S. had invaded – or the, the Russians – no, Cubans had invaded – no, what am I mis- mixing up here? We went the to invasion. Grenada, right? Yeah. Wasn't that Reagan Gren- going to Grenada? Yeah. No, no. It was um, – the U.S. went in to save – uh, Grenada from the um, oh, Cubans, was right? It? So, um, so, uh, and communism, you know, the fight against right, communism. Yes. Nicaragua. Um, so and that, yeah. So that, well, that, that required, <laughs> uh, from that, that sentence, Colt, you're going to Grenada from that sentence to, you know, the following 24 hours, um, involving evolved, um, hiring a Learjet, Loading it up with six photographers, Wally McNamee, Randy Taylor, um, Mario Ruiz. Uh, I'm forgetting a bunch of other people here now. Um, and uh, we picked up a correspondent, Elaine Shalino, uh, in Washington and myself to fly to Grenada uh, to see if we can recoup film, whether we could take film, we could, you know, whatever we had to do, get on the island because it was barred from you know, uh, airspace was barred. So we're flying in a Learjet on our way to uh, Grenada. And as soon as we got within smelling distance of the island, an F-15 pulls up right next to us and tells us that if we proceeded any further, we would be shot out of the sky. So the, the, the pilot tells us this, and we're trying to tell them, you know, you know, we're Americans. They would never shoot us, but the pilot wouldn't have any of that. So we landed in Barbados. Um, and then we proceeded to, you know, get boats and, and put photographers in boats and try to invade the island ourselves, uh, which we did. Um, and then finally worked out a pool system with the government. It's a long story. Um, but that's what we, that's what we did. Um, so those, those are the kinds of things that, you know, we had to do back then. And, and like I said, you know, uh, there was there was no Internet, no telephones uh, other than sat phones. There was no cell phones or anything like that. Um, and so communications was very, very difficult. And, um, and then again, it was like, how do you beat the deadline? So since I'm on this story, I'll just make this very quick. Uh, it turns out Wally McNamee did in fact get onto the, 
on the island because he was a, a Marine, and Marines always manage to do exactly what they have to do. Uh, he shot a whole bunch of film, um, and he was with a photographer named Jean-Louis Atlan of Sigma, um, and they had to figure out a way to get the film back to New York. So if you're on the island and it's totally cut off, how do you manage to get film back to New York? without? You can't give it to the government. They're not going to fly it out. No. So, so they went to the university where the students were being evacuated and being flown back to the United States, and they handed all their film to a student. And a big note on there saying, you know, Call this number as soon as you get into wherever you get to in the United States. They will take care of everything. They'll give you $100 or whatever it was. Right. Um, and they gave him the film. So the kid carries all the film back. But when he got to customs, the customs guy says, what the hell is this? And he says, it's film. So he takes the two envelopes, one of Wally McNamese and one of Jean-Louis Atlan, empties them on the table, and all the rolls of film come out. So now we don't know whose film is whose. And then he finally says, okay, it's film, it's not contraband, whatever, and he gives it back to the student. And the student flies off, get, met in Atlanta, we get the film, but now we don't know whose is whose, and there's no way of contacting Wally or, or Jean-Louis Atlan. <laughs> there was lots of great film on there because it, it, Wally managed to hook up with the Marines. You know, why not? He's a Marine. Right. right? Uh, and Jean-Louis Atlan. So we had all this great film, but so we didn't know how to credit it, so we gave it a dual credit. Every picture that ran, since we didn't know whose it was, read Jean-Louis Atlan Sigma slash Wally McNamee Newsweek um, because we there was no way to figure out whose film it was. Mm -hmm. So that's a fun little story on that. Was but, that a first time they got a duel on something like that? Yes. Um, it's actually, actually interesting because it was the first time there was um, a duel – a cover. Um, and I can't remember what the other story was, but again, somebody could look it up whenever the U S invasion of Grenada was, um, and find the cover of Newsweek. There was a slash through the middle, a diagonal slash and half of it was Grenada and whatever the biggest story was back then. And I don't know what it was. It must've been was, big. Yeah. Was the other half. Um, so not only was there a, a dual credit for the, half of the picture there was a another credit for the other half of the picture on the cover wow strange yeah so did those those early years at newsweek and then you're little you know going off and then coming back how how did you change from you know in those those years where did you start to feel growth I felt growth everywhere. So um, the thing was you know when I worked at the AP you know I started in the photo library well actually when I worked in the in the color lab, you know, learning how to read color negative and then moving up to the photo library at the Associated Press doing research and then becoming the color picture editor. Um, so that was growth the, all along those years. And then going to Newsweek magazine, the first 11 years as the international picture editor, I got to go places, you know, that I would never have, you know, went to Russia and Iceland and Reykjavik and for the summit and, and you know, places, you know, um, Berlin for the infamous Hitler diaries that weren't real. Yeah. So I got to do a whole lot of traveling that i never would have had the opportunity to do unless I wound up with a job like that. So, so I, a lot of growth at Newsweek during those 11 years. And then at the end of those 11 years, you know, one of the agencies called CEPA press, there were three big agencies in, in France, um, Sigma, 
SEPA and um, Gamma Liaison. And SEPA, the guy who ran the place, his name is a Turkish guy by the name Gokshin Sipayoglu, hence SEPA, um, was a wild man. And he was one of those guys that spent money, didn't care, but uh, wanted to get the best for his agency. So he offered me a gazillion dollars to run SEPA in New York and leave Newsweek. So I had to make the decision uh, of what I wanted to do. So I talked to the folks at Newsweek and said, look, you know, I've been working here for 11 years um, and you guys are in need of a director of photography. Jim Kenny had left in 1984, um, which was the same year as the, 19, uh, as the uh, Olympics in Los Angeles, mm -hmm. which I also got. Um, and I said, you guys going to make a decision on who you're hiring? And am I in uh, the running as a, a candidate to be the director of photography here? And the, I won't mention his name, but the editor in chief at the time says, Jim, how old are you? And at that time, let me see, 1984. 80, no, because I left in 88. So okay. it, Kenny left in 84. There was a couple of years and they, you know, they, they didn't. Yeah. So I, I guess it'd be 85. So I'm 30, you know? Okay. Um, so whatever I'm 30. And he says, uh, don't you think that's a little young to be the director of photography? So I looked at him and I said, Rick, I, I just gave his name away. I said, <laughs> how old are you? He says, I'm 37. And I said, don't you think that's a little old? Uh, don't you think that's a little young to be the editor-in-chief of the magazine? Well, that ended that, you know. So I did not get hired. Um, and so the decision became very easy for me. They were not going to give me the opportunity for managerial experience. Um, so I took the job at SEPA where they paid me a, a shitload of money. Sorry for the French. Um, <laughs> French is good. <laughs> and I ran that agency for three years. But in that, when I started that agency, everybody said I was nuts because they had a really bad reputation. They had um, published a picture in the New York Times magazine of what they said was a drug bus was actually a commercial shoot for lighting equipment or something like that. It was just terrible. So SEPA's name was like mud in the United States. And everybody was saying, wait a minute, you're leaving Newsweek. Uh, after 11 years to go work for SEPA? What are you, crazy? And everybody said I was nuts. So I said, look, um, there's a lot of good opportunity. I know SEPA's got a lot of great photographers out there, but they're terribly unorganized, both in the United States, but you know, um, I think I could do good uh, by working for them. So I took the job, and in three years, um, SEPA became one of the most published agency names in the United States. We had covers of Time and Newsweek and New York Times started using us again because I had to physically you know, approve everything that got sent to them <laughs> uh, because of that debacle. Uh, but yeah, I, for those three years, we had the cover of every magazine that you can imagine and turned a you know minus in the red millions of dollars agency into in the black in 18 months. Wow. Um, and, and in that period of time, I was able to earn my stripes on managing and becoming, um, you know, earning some time as a, for managerial experience, which was not being given to me or afforded to me uh, at Newsweek, even after 11 years of working for them. So I did that for three years and 
Newsweek starts knocking on my door at the end of the three years. <laughs> they see new, something, do they? <laughs> and a new editor, because um, the other guy got kicked upstairs, called me and wanted me to come back to Newsweek as a director of photography. And at that time, <clears throat> I had allegiances to the people I used to work with there. And I said I would only do it on one condition, is that the people that are currently working there don't get fired, uh, that you bring me in with, an, uh, with a nebulous title. And that's when I created Director of Photography. And the person who was the photo editor remained the photo editor. He, he had kept that title. Um, and uh, with those conditions, I would, I would come back. And also after talking to uh, several people at Newsweek, um, before I returned. So I did go back, uh, and did another six years there. So again, I'm, I, it sounds like prison terms. I know. <laughs> well, <let's... laughs> so seven, 17 years, uh, uh, combined in two stints. Um, and see, you, see, uh, you my... said stints again, this sounded to sound like an episode yeah, from the wire. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and at the, the, I did that for another six years and the last issue of the magazine I worked on. And I'll tell you a very quick side story about that, which is kind of funny, um, was uh, Lady Di, who um, was killed in the crash that Labor Day weekend, right before I was my last week. So I managed to, to we crashed to cover and did a special uh, in my last week of, of working for Newsweek. I had committed at that time to go work for Sports Illustrated, mm -hmm. um, who, uh, had going through been going through their own changes, um, and I had known uh, their director of photography, Heinz Klutmeyer, before he turned over the reins to Steve Fine. Uh, and Steve Fine, I played against in softball at the New York Press Softball League, and he was a pull hitter, and I played left field, so I was robbing him of every hit possible, <laughs> um, which, which people to this day say is the reason he offered me the job so <clears throat> I could play for the Sports Illustrated softball team rather than, work, uh, you know, for the AP or wherever. <laughs> he wanted anyway. his balls down the line. That's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, no, but yeah, I, I, we joke about that a lot, but, sure. you know, um, and, and Steve and I had a great run uh, at, at Sports Illustrated. So anyway, I committed to working to Sports Illustrated um, and it was, you know, I, I love sports as well. Um, I was a bit of a, uh, a jock, a small one growing up and, and love sports, but love sports photography. I love photography of all kinds. And I knew that Sports Illustrated was doing great things with, with, with photography. So, um, and Steve had been after me for almost a year uh, to, to come work for him. Um, and at the end of the um, six years, second stint with the Lady Die cover, um, prior to that, they had hired a, a new art director, which they gave a a title of creative director because they're no longer art directors. They're now creative directors. Oh. And, and I, I was told by the boss that hired me, you know, 11 years, uh, six years prior, that um, my department would fall under her department. Um, and I was not very happy about that. So I said, okay. We'll give it, you know, some time to see if, how that works. And, you know, if, if that works, it's fine. But um, I'm not happy about it. Um, so this was, again, at the same time that Steve was trying to get me to come work for him at Sports Illustrated. And so, again, I had to make another decision. You know, I had gotten my – I paid my dues, did my director of photography thing at um, 
at Newsweek for those six years and put out some great magazines. And then I mentioned the Lady Die cover. It was a Patrick de Marchelier black and white picture, beautiful picture that was on the cover. And I received a letter that somebody sent, you know, to the letters at Newsweek. And the letter said, dear photo editor, if this picture is the best that you can do for Lady Die, perhaps you should think about working for Sports Illustrated. <laughs> well, I, I swear to God, and I have this letter and I still have this letter. So I, I was tempted, but I didn't write him back saying, thank you for your suggestions. I am working for Sports Illustrated now. Um, but I kept this letter and, and it's just a, like a little funny aside because I guess they thought it was too sporty, the picture. Uh, I just thought it was beautiful. Um, but anyway, long story short, I go off to work for, for Sports Illustrated um, with Steve Fine, which, uh, again, instant time, uh, turned out to be 15 years. Um, and we did some really, really amazing things. Um, and again, it was you talk about growth. I now go through another period of my life and, and I'm, I'm wanting, you know, wanting to start a new chapter of my life. And, you know, shortly after I got there um, and uh, I, actually I'm skipping over a lot of stuff in between all of that, we transited from analog to digital. Right. I mean, and that's, you know, that late nineties things are happening. Yeah. Yeah. Then that was a big, big transition for, for, for Newsweek. So I, I got them up to speed on, on digital, you know, um, and, uh, started the photographers on shooting digital, um, which nobody was really happy about. I was going to um, say, I'm sure you weren't the most favorite at that point. Cause no, no, but you know, there's, there was, like I said, you, you grow. I mean, if you don't grow in the business, if you don't change with the business and how it changes, you're going to get left behind. And that's what we kept telling people. Look, you may not like it, but this is where it's going. And trust me, you're going to have to learn to do this because you're not going to have a choice, um, somewhere down the line. Uh, and you know, that, that was a big deal because, you know, everything changed deadlines changed, you know, how, how you can expedite stuff change, how you shoot stuff changed. Uh, there was, there's just, you know, so much that came with, with digital. Um, and it was a growing process. Early digital sucked. It was horrible. <laughs> it was, it was really, really bad. Um, and we experimented with stuff. And, you know, like anything else, you, it's trial and error until you get it right. And, and, you know, it takes time to do that. But anyway, I go, so I go off to new, to, to uh, Sports Illustrated and they haven't transited to digital yet. And the photographers, especially the sports photographers, you know, telling Walter Yost, no, you're going to have to start shooting digital now. Uh-uh. You know, that that was just not in the cards and he was almost refusing and all that. And it just it took a long time for him to get on that bandwagon. But eventually he did, just like everybody else had to. Um, but, you know, so, again, I got to experience the growth on that part of it. But the weird thing about it all, which was was a lot of fun looking back, um, is three to six months after I got there, um the art director did a redesign and they created the section up front um, and it wound up being called leading off, which was the first three spreads of the magazine were devoted to just three pictures. In other words, double trucks from whatever. And so he came up with this idea, but didn't know how to do it. So <laughs> the question was, what are we going to put in here and who's going to do it? And I, I looked at him, I said, are you shitting me? I mean, <laughs> you're going to devote 18 columns because I was thinking in Newsweek terms, you know, six pages. Right. You know, 
that's a lot of pages. You know, you're going to devote 18 columns to just three pictures and nothing else. I'll do it, please. You know, so I inherited the leading off section. Do you think that in any way that had the idea like they're competing with ESPN, the magazine at the time? Was there a lot of peaking no, no, over? No, no, there wasn't. I think what happened was, you know, the ESPN, the magazine was coming out, yes, and there was also some, some you know, some fear. But, but they, they, they realized and they mistakenly thought that they were competition. But they, weren't, they really weren't, you no, know, in a yeah. lot of senses. Because um, a lot of people didn't realize this, and maybe the, 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 your listeners don't realize this either. Sports Illustrated was a weekly magazine. ESPN was a bi-weekly or a bi-monthly, mm-hmm. every two weeks, right? So there was no way that ESPN could keep up with the news value of what was happening, you know, Super Bowl, whatever it is, the way that SI could because they're on a weekly basis. So, right. you know, they would come out a week later, you know. Um, so what ESPN wound up doing was a lot of previews and a lot of features, and they they – put together a lot of splashy things ahead of time, but the actual events, that was SI's game. Right. Nobody, nobody could be compete with them. Okay. Not even the newspapers, no other magazines, no, nobody. No. And with the advent of leading off, you can now, if there was some, you know, spectacular event, Olympics, Super Bowl, World Series, whatever it is, you can take those, 18 columns, six pages, three double trucks, and devote it to that story as well as the whatever else you put in the magazine. So you had this opportunity to just like when you open up the magazine, the first thing you see are these three giant pictures, you know, and they're chosen not necessarily for news value, which was the argument that I had to get into with the editors all the time, but for photographic value. They just had to be freaking beautiful. You know, they had to be either in your face action or just like sunset over the the roof of the Australian Open or whatever it was, mm-hmm. you know, just beautiful pictures, stunning. Um, Steve Fine used to call what he did and what I do crunch and grace. He was crunch. I was grace. All right. He liked the the smash mouth in your face action picture. I love the beautiful panoramics, color, geography, uh, geometrics, you know, uh, spatial value, all of those things that just like are visually enticing to me. So I would have this argument not only with Steve every week about the content, but with the editor and then trying to convince the editor sometimes, you know, why I'm thinking why I'm thinking about a particular photograph was a bit of a dance. You know, first of all, he's devoting all this space to you and giving you this free reign to run these pictures. But it's got to be stuff that, you know, is that the readers are going to want to be interested in as well. So he had to he had to weigh all of that. So when I would go in and I'd, I'd show him a picture of Buskashi, which is the national sport of Afghanistan. And the national sport of Afghanistan is literally dragging a beheaded goat on horseback between goals, right? So there are these like amazing pictures as, as you can well imagine. Mm-hmm. These horses carrying this carcass and fighting and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And we I actually convinced the editor to run that in the magazine. And then we got these letters saying, what the hell is this? You know, <laughs> Both people are saying, you know, 
And then we also got a lot of same people, you know, um, letters saying, wow, this is the national sport of Afghanistan. How cool is that? And I actually wrote people back saying, yeah, you know, this is the only sport because at the end of the, the, the game, they actually cook the goat and eat it. So I said, this is the only sport where you get to eat the ball, you know, uh, I remember and, that photo, Jim. I I, I know exactly the photo. It yeah. was gorgeous. So in the yeah, in the beginning, it was like very difficult to get you know these kinds of things. I'm pushing all of this like elephant polo in Nepal, and and Steve is pushing you know the Rangers game or whatever. Right. <laughs> but so there was a delicate balance. But then then you know it got to a point where you know I did this for 15 years. So that's three double trucks. That's 52 issues. That's a you know. 150 pictures and 150 photographers I made really, really happy because they got a double truck in the magazine mm -hmm. times 15 years. So we're talking about thousands and thousands of, of pictures. So by the time it grew, you know, we needed to, to, to mix that up as well. So I, I convinced the, the editors and the art director um, to utilize the six pages for an occasional freestanding photo essay where you can run like an opener or double truck and then on the second page, two or three pictures and then last page, you know, maybe one or two pictures or whatever it may be mm -hmm. with a little bit of text, you know? Right. So it's a self-contained story, but again, we're utilizing the space to tell sports stories, no matter how wild they could be. And, you know, they could be anything from, um, you know, as I said, the, the, whatever's going on that particular week, we could, we could break it down and, and, you know, expand it and take the pictures that, that didn't make it into the regular um, portion of where normally go in the magazine and utilize the space up front to do it. So we, we managed to, to not only get some really great crunch pictures, which made Steve fine, very happy, but we also got a lot of really, a lot of really good grace pictures, which made me very happy. So, um, I, I got to tell you for, you know, in the, the, that was like the last real, not going to say real job, but last, you know, major magazine, major publication job I had before I left and, and doing that for 15 years, I got to tell you, that was one of the, the most fun things I've worked on for a long time. I mean, I'm going to just go off on a tangent again, please. Um, Lynn Johnson, who is one of my favorite people in the world, as, as well as being one of the greatest photographers that ever lived, um, made several trips on her own um, to the Dominican Republic, where she would help, you know, bring medicine to 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 um, uh, to a hospital uh, that she befriended. And she would do things like that, you know, on her own dime and whatever. And when she was there, she was she photographed these kids playing baseball in a place called Bayaguana in the middle of the Dominican Republic. And the kids were using sticks or branches for bats and two by fours or whatever they can get um, and rocks for, for, for balls and would use an old tire for home plate and they would play in the streets. And, and she took pictures of these kids and she showed them to me and I said, God, these are great. Um, so I convinced the editors to run the entire leading off section on these pictures. So we opened up with these kids playing and then we did a series of portraits of their, their proud faces holding their bats. And, um, and then we closed it out with this like really awful dilapidated field with the aforesaid tire at home plate. 
and we published it in a magazine and we got such a huge reader response from that uh, where people said, oh, my God, these poor kids, you know, I've got a bunch of stuff in my in my garage I would like to send to them. Do you think there's any way where I could donate some stuff for the kids? So we got such a response that I, I wrote everybody back and I said, OK, uh, in addition to whatever you got in your garage, send along a ream of loose leaf paper or a packet of pencils or backpack or any kind of school goods as well as whatever you can find. And we'll find a way to get it to the kids. So there were literally hundreds of people that wanted to help. Um, and I answered every one of them. And in six weeks, we received uh, the equivalent of 17 cases of donated equipment. One law firm in Oklahoma made uniforms for all the kids. <laughs> um, and they sent all of this and they sent, you know, reams of loose leaf paper and all this stuff. So we wound up with 17 cases or crates, um, which we packed up. And then Lynn Johnson and myself used our frequent flyer miles. We went back to this little town of Bayaguana, found the kids that were in the pictures and gave them their, their, you know, bats and balls and stuff. And then we took all of the residual stuff to the only school and then uh, distributed to all the students, uh, the kids that were going to school there. So, and what they did was they lined them up in, in order of need. So the neediest ones that they thought came first and they got the pick of the litter until everything was, was taken. Um, and then everything else that was left there was for communal use for, for the kids. So wow. what happened there again is because of one person, Lynn Johnson's, you know, dedication to covering what was going on in, in a particular country and, and my seeing the pictures and, and getting them published. Those are the gems I was talking about before you know, I got them published so people got to see them and it affected people. These pictures actually moved them to a point where they wanted to do something for them. So the pictures caused a visceral response, which is what great photography does. And it made them want to do something. And we facilitated that to happen. And there's no greater joy than that, that anybody can ask for, whether you're a photo editor or, or a plumber. You know, if something good comes out of what you do, it just makes you feel great. I mean, does does young Jim sitting in an AP office standing over boxes of negs looking at stuff think years later that you would be a part of anything like that in photography? No, no, because young Jim at the AP, you know, had hair down to his, you know, shoulders and was interested in going off to Europe on, on a summer vacation <laughs> if, he could, if he could earn enough money, you know, to do that. Um, but he also, you know, got to experience a time in our business where where news mattered, uh, how you did your job mattered, uh, and what you did was important. Um, and you took great pride in that. So uh, young Jim worked very hard, but he also played very hard. Middle-aged Jim changed. <laughs> he didn't. He worked just as hard. He probably didn't play as hard. Uh, and then older Jim, he always worked as hard uh, and and plays less, but plays enough. Um, so, you know, yeah. Thinking back, you know, if you told me back then, fifty years ago, that I'd have the opportunity to, to fly the Concorde seven times, 
you know, as a, as a, basically as a film courier, I would have said you're nuts, you know, um, but life happens, you know, and, and you, and you change with it. That's where, you know, I wouldn't change what we do for anything because we have the ability to, to, to be involved in people's lives like that, that is just so special, just so special. There's nothing like yeah, that. Absolutely. I mean, we're, um, Unfortunately, and maybe a lot of you know, your viewers know this, we lost a really, really beautiful human being uh, this past week in Michelle McNally, uh, who was the director of photography with the New York Times. Mm -hmm. And I had known Michelle a long, long time. And um, it, it's what we do. It's what she did. It's what she cared about. And she was quoted in, in her obit, uh, is saying we have to remember that, you know, when you go and you photograph these people, it's a gift. And you have to remember that, that it's a gift. You've been granted a gift when you are entering these people's lives. And you you can never forget that. And you should never take advantage of it or take it for granted that this is a gift that was given to you and you should make the best of it. Yeah. And, and you're, you're right. Um, I, I wouldn't change any of that. You know, what I've done over the 50 years, I'm very, very proud of. I also think I'm the luckiest man in the world on a lot of senses that over the 50 years, I was never fired <laughs> you know, over the over that period and, and or let go because of, you know, cutbacks or whatever it may be. Um, and there are not a lot of people that can say that that didn't get affected in some way, but, but I consider myself blessed, which is why I, I do the things I do now and did over those, those 50 years, uh, you know, working for the Eddie Adams workshop, uh, for 30 years straight, uh, as a faculty member, giving back to the industry, the photo fusion for 25 years straight, uh, working for the, um, as a mentor for the Asian American Journalists Association, uh, all of those things are really near and dear to me, and I and I take them all very very seriously uh, because that is my gift back to the community that's been very good to me, you know. And and I will never forget, you know, the experiences I've had, the lessons I've learned, some good, some bad, but they're they're learned. Um, and and I will never forget the people I've met along the way and taking any of them for granted. Right. Uh, you know, it's, it's a, it's a beautiful symbiotic relationship that we have. And for the photographers, especially I'm, I'm the, I'm the, the middleman in all of this, you know, as the photo editor, there's a lot of people that don't know what photo editors do. Um, and we all know what photographers do. You know, when you right. say I'm a photographer, they they know exactly what you do. When you tell them you're a photo editor, they don't know what you do. They really don't. I mean, when when I was working for Sports Illustrated, and you know, I'm in a cab on the way someplace, and he says, "Oh, you get into small talk." So, what do you do? So, I'm a photo editor. Oh yeah, where where do you work? Sports Illustrated. Oh, so how do you like working on those swimsuit issues? <laughs> you know, that's, that's like the first thing they equate. <laughs> the first thing they equate with half naked women, right? Sure, yeah, of right, exactly. Yeah, right. So, what do I tell them? He's a cab driver. Oh, yeah, I love doing them. Yeah, yeah. I worked on a single one. You know, they have a staff of people that work on that. You know, entirely all year, and it's their breadwinner. And and God bless them. It's a, you know, it's a branding thing, and right. it works, and it brings money. You know, it paid for everything else. That is right. Like it. it did. So, but 
Yeah. But, but when I, when I'm getting, again, I'm going off on a tangent, but when somebody asks you what you, what you do and you try to tell me you're a photo editor and well, what does a photo editor do? And then you have to start explaining to them. And, and I, my, the simplest explanation was from Steve Hine, who I love and I still love to this day. Uh, and, and he said, you know, when he was asked, what, what does a photo editor do? And he said, I take big piles and I make them into little piles. And, to him, it was that simple, but there's so many other facets of being a photo editor. You know, it's like everybody thinks that we choose what runs in the magazine or the newspapers. No, we choose what we think should run in the magazines and newspapers. The ones that make those decisions are the editors of those magazines and newspapers, right? Mm-hmm. They're the ones that have the final say. It's not me. The photo editors don't pick the pictures that run in the magazine. The photo editors suggest what might be best for whatever reason. And then we have to eloquently state why we think that and then let them shoot you down um, <laughs> or one way or the other. Um, I'm going to tell another story when I was with, with Newsweek and there was an, an editor named Lester Bernstein and Lester was a money guy. Um, and we were in the middle of the Falklands war. Um, and the that's when the you know the british sent the entire fleet down there to to solve this war and we had these amazing pictures and in that in those days we i think we had like four pages of color that were allotted and and if you wanted more you'd have to buy another another four pages or whatever at a time and it's an expense so we happened to get these like really remarkable pictures from the falklands war on a particular week uh, that we did very well and we showed them, and, and the editor didn't want to run any more pictures, and he was allotted in color for those four pages. So I, I was, like, steaming. I was, like, really pissed. So I went back upstairs and sat down with John Whalen and Jim Kenny, and I said, we got to do something about this. We really should try to convince him that these pictures are worth doing it. And he says, okay. So I, I, I got John Whalen, the deputy, to come down with me, and we walked down to Lester Bernstein's office, and when I knock on his door. Lester takes a look at us. And he kind of knows what I'm going to be saying. Uh, And I said, Lester, could we come in and talk to you for a minute? And Lester said, sure, come on in so I can throw you out in five minutes. (laughs) And I went in. (laughs) I explained exactly why we should do it. And he explained to me that it's a business and that he has to make decisions that are based on economics as well as you know, artistic or journalistic and whatever. And he was firm in his decision that it wasn't worth adding another hundred thousand dollars to, to get four more pages of color in this particular instance. Now get the fuck out of my office. Um, but he said that with respect and I, you know, I, and I'm kidding here, but I'm not, mm-hmm. I could walk into his office and talk to him about anything. He was that good an editor and he had his way, of course, about how he felt and said things. Um, but that's that's that was the beauty that you could walk into an, an editor's office, make your case, mm-hmm. and you win some and you lose some. But if you're not fighting for the pictures, you're not doing your job as the photo editor. And the photo editor fights for the photographers. The photographers out there bust, busting their butts, putting themselves in harm's way, making these incredible pictures, then gets them back to us in some way. And it's our responsibility to try to get magazine newspaper whoever to publish it so we're acting as a conduit a lot of times and we have to promote good work and and that's basically what one of the things a photographer does i mean a photo editor does we have many 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 hats 
the the fun hat, my most favorite hat, is the literal photo editor's hat, where I get to look at pictures. Nothing in the world makes me happier than looking at pictures. The hat that I hate to wear the most is the kindergarten cop hat, where you have to deal with, yeah, you know, the, the personnel department and the lawyer's department and the legal department and, you know, all these other things. But that comes with the territory. And you, you have to, and the business hat. You have to wear all of these hats. That's all part of being a photo editor. We also wear the Kevlar. We, we have to take the hits. When a photographer screws up, we go down and we tell the editor, oh, we don't have the picture. Who gets shot? <laughs> yeah. Not the photographer. We do, right? So right. We, we're the intermediary. So we, we have to wear the Kevlar. So we have to make sure that the photographers don't screw up as much because we, we will take the hits for you. But we're also not going to throw you under the bus. We're not going to say, oh, the photographer didn't do it. You know, we just say we didn't get the pictures or whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we have to do a lot of things, cultivating new talent, uh, grooming them. Um, you have to cultivate them. You have to, to, to work with them, help them become better photographers, help them become better people. That's all part and parcel of the many hats that the photo editor has to wear. But the, it really comes down to a balance of how much time you wear what hat. So if it, if it gets to a point where the bad hats you, you have to wear outweigh the good hats, then it's time to look to, to see if, you know, there's something else on the horizon for you. That's a lot of hats, man. That's a lot of it hats. Is. <laughs> good Lord. And that's kind of what happened, you know, all, along the career there from AP to, to you know, to, to Newsweek, to SEPA, back to Newsweek, and then to Sports Illustrated. It, it, every time... I kind of felt that, you know, one of the one of the hats I was wearing wasn't, you know, either appreciated like my my credo, which is kind of weird because it, back in back in those days, a lot of people thought you had to be everybody's friend. Right. Mm -hmm. And when you're working with editors and, and, and they they're, they get into cliques. There's the writing side and there's the art side and then there's a the photo side. And they used to be called church and state. And then there was always some animosity, right. you know, who gets more space, et cetera. And there's also. To me, that was all bullshit. You know, I, I didn't care. I didn't care if you liked me. I didn't care if you wanted me to, you know, go out to dinner or lunch with you. The only thing I cared about was that you respected my opinion and I respected yours. And that's what it comes down to. And, and there are other people that, that work differently. And that's, that's fine. That's the way they, they do their business. But for me, the only thing that kept me going was the fact that I could walk into anybody's office state my case and they would listen and respond uh, respectfully. So if there ever became a position where that tilted, it was time to look elsewhere or <clears throat> if there were other hats that I had to wear or if other hats were being ignored, those were also elements that, that led me to, to seek other uh, opportunities. So that's basically what happened during all those transits, there was a, something good for me. And I was very, very fortunate that there was something good for me when the time was right. So I, I do really do consider, consider myself blessed. So, um, again, I'm off on tangents. No, here, but, no. You know, I mean, those are, I mean, those moves. And when those windows opened up, you jumped through the right ones. You either put yeah, yourself in the it, right it, place. You knew the right people. You made the right decisions the places you did pick were right for you at the time. I mean, that's, that is really a wonderful career. No, I'm, I, I am very, very proud of, of every place I worked 
and and how I wound up going from one one place to the next. Um, I mean, yeah, it's a, if, if SEPA goes terribly wrong, let's say in that first 18 months, instead of you turning it from red to black, it goes worse. Like the guy just looks at you, this Turk and says, you're out, man. Th- this is not working. Right. Now right. what happens? The, the guy, right. the guy yeah. at Newsweek looks at you and says, see, I told you, you didn't have any managerial right. skills. Yeah. And next right. thing you know, what are you doing? Right. No, I would, you know, the only thing that I could say to that is that, um, I made a decision. It could have been right or it could have been wrong, but I made the decision. Mm-hmm. Looking back, I know people, um, not anymore, but let's say 10 years ago, that I started working with at the AP back in 1972 that were still working at the AP. Not that because they didn't want to go anyplace else, but they were afraid to go someplace else. They were, they got, you know, kind of ensconced in their own little world and maybe they loved it and that's all great. Um, But, you know, I don't think I could have stayed at AP for 40 years. And I don't think I could have stayed at Newsweek for 40 years or any one place for 40 years because there isn't the opportunity for growth unless you're really, really lucky that you're able to change with the times and people, you know, appreciate that and, and, and all that. But I could tell you if I was any one place for 40 years, there's a greater possibility I'd be fired from that place before the 40 right. years came up right. because I, I spoke my mind. I, I mean, I, I was almost fired many times, you know, and, and, and I, I'm, I'm known for this, so I'm, I won't be speaking out of turn. And at, when I got to sports illustrated <clears throat> And and I was doing one of these leading offs. Um, we had a picture of Mia Hamm uh, during the U.S. Soccer um, World Cup. And she's leaping over a, a player. And um, and I actually, you know, chose the picture and cropped it. And I actually did the layout on it because uh, I got tired of them cropping them badly. Uh, so... <laughs> I, I, this was approved and, and, and the next Monday, or Monday, no, they closed, they closed on Monday. Closed they closed on, on Monday. Monday. Right. Yep. Wednesday. Wednesday, I open up the magazine and the woman that she's jumping over is gone. And they moved the text block from where I had it to someplace else, but they actually removed somebody from the image. And I went and, called the the art director and said what what the hell is this um and the photographer who took it also realized whoa so the photographer you know goes you know starts talking and you know how it is when photographers start talking uh-huh. about how sports illustrator was altering you know their pictures and started showing this around and here's the original and here's what they printed and blah blah blah, blah. so i get a call from pdn uh, and I was furious. Uh, and PDN says, uh, would you like to comment on this? <laughs> and I said, yeah. <laughs> and I want to go on the, and I want to go on the record. And I said, I think I could be quoted as saying the art department has total disregard for the content of a photograph as long as it meets their aesthetics. And they have removed things. They have, you know, done whatever they felt was necessary to make it look good. And something to that effect. And they published it. 
with my name and attribution and whatever. So needless to say, I get called into the editor's office and I get start screaming at me. And I said, I'm not telling you anything new. You guys are doing this. It's wrong. It's journalistically wrong. You got to stop doing this. And he says, yeah, but you shouldn't be taking this out in the public. And, and I said to him, I swear to God, I said to him, I said, well, Terry, you know, the, the managing editor was Terry. McDonald. Yeah. Terry, sometimes to get the fruit, you have to shake the tree. And I shook the tree and it definitely got their attention, you know, but I didn't lie. And I wasn't going to lie for SI and I wasn't going to lie for anybody. You know, I'm not going to say, oh, I don't know what they did. I mean, who knows what they do. I'm not going to slough it off on somebody. I was pissed. If you say no comment, you just look like yeah, a, yeah, exactly. a bigger so I've, I've always, I've, this is what I'm trying to get to is I've yeah. always spoken my mind. Yeah. So I'm you surprised have I haven't been, yeah, but I'm surprised I haven't been fired, you know, because I do shit like that. And, and what I did uh, actually resulted in a positive thing because right after that, they issued a statement saying something to the effect that nothing will be added or taken out from a photograph, blah, 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 blah. So they, they came up with a digital policy uh, regarding what they can do with photography uh, for the magazine based on the tree that I shook. You know, so, um, you know, something positive came out of that. Thank but, you know, God that's you that. did that. Well, yeah, but it's, you know, I, and I've been a, a staunch staunch uh, advocate of truth and photojournalism. I did talks, you know, um, I don't know when I did Annenberg, I spoke about, you know, um, sports photography, but when, when I, you know, I went around the country literally to schools mm -hmm. and, and did things on, on, I called it photography, F A U X photography. <laughs> and it showed examples from everything from, you know, Matthew Brady to, to, you know, the Soviet regime taking people out of favor and, you know, photoshopping them out and, and to the lightning and darkening of O.J. Simpson's cover on Time magazine, whether it's intentional, whether it wasn't intentional mm -hmm. to, you know, to uh, a guy that worked for the Toledo Blade that that uh, manipulated 54 published pictures before somebody <laughs> noticed. Um, so, you know, I, I, I would talk about this stuff saying, dude, you know, you have you can't. It, I mean, the, the, you use your, you know, use your judgment, but use the, the, the credo they used to use in, in, in the old days of printing, which is whatever you can do in a darkroom within conventional darkroom techniques, lightning, darkening, contrast, etc. But you don't take stuff out. You don't add stuff. I mean, the guy from Toledo Blade added balls, you know, right. and moved basketballs and things like that. I mean, so, you know, because at some point somebody's going to look at this and they have to, they're going to think it's real. Mm -hmm. And when that happens, you, you, if you lose credibility as a journalist, then you've lost everything, you know? Right. So I've been a staunch, staunch advocate of truth and photojournalism. And, and, and whenever I saw something, I mean, there was a case where, and it wasn't even, um, photo manipulation in the truest sense. World press photo one year awarded a photographer, for this series of pictures that were shot in Charleroi. Uh, uh, and one of the pictures was supposed to show, you know, the, the, the sort of daily life or the, the, of this town and it was a seedy side or whatever. And it was of a, a, allegedly of a person having sex in the back of a car clandestinely. Um, 
And the whole series was awarded, you know, a prize in World Press, which is like, you know, one of the most prestigious awards you can get. Right. The problem was that the picture was it was lit from indoors, like somebody had a um, some sort of a light source that they were bouncing off of the ceiling to light the interior of the car. Uh-huh. The the headlights were on to flash against the bricks that were in front of them the tail lights were on so it was set up in such a way that if you were going to have clandestine sex you would not have the lights on inside your car you wouldn't leave the lights on in your car or on your car you know all of that it was just all like everything that could be wrong about a picture was wrong so i you know and uh, the prize was already awarded so i i you know there was a lot of you know going back and forth and the world press actually contacted the photographer and the photographer said, yeah, I know the kid, you know, he said he was going to go have sex. So I went and photographed him, but it was set up. <laughs> so they, they passed this office being a found moment and they let him keep the prize. Oh. So I wrote this like open letter to the world press and it got a lot of attention. Um, and I'm, I'm not the only person that wrote, but I will say that mine was pretty harsh and I had just been, um, a world press juror uh, chair uh, a few years before. So it carried a little bit more weight. And my concern was how can you award something that you know was a setup in what's supposed to be a feature category or whatever that where it's a found moment. This wasn't found. This was set up all the way. Yeah. Come on guys, get with it. Um, You're, you're tarnishing the reputation of your, of your own contest yeah. by awarding this you know uh even after your investigation so long story short they they rescinded the award but and again i'm not basing that on my letter but you know once they decided to give the guy the award everybody just said whoa no 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 <laughs> and you know so it was things like that that you know i will will chime in on even if i have nothing to do with it um because if i think something is wrong and i've been wrong myself you know there was a picture of um of what was supposed to be a lightning bolt that was captured and it was a sequence and it actually went through the head of, you know, I think it was Doug Mills and it went through the head of, of Donald Trump in a, in a, in a silhouette. Um, and uh, it just looked like the bolt was, you know, uh, because it was a sequence, I don't know how it got to a particular point. So I questioned it, but I questioned it in a way saying, Wow, is how is is the speed of this of the new cameras possible to catch a lightning bolt in three frames or whatever it is? This is really you know cool if it's if it is, but, but what is it? Please help. And a lot of people took that as my insulting Doug Mills of you know allegedly maybe he did something. No, I wasn't insulting him. I was questioning the image, not his integrity. Mm-hmm. And somebody wrote back saying, yeah, yeah, Doug actually wrote back saying, okay. The, the Nikon does this, you know, at 17, here the, here's the sequence, the whole sequence. And he, and I was fine with that. But a lot of people got pissed off at me because I questioned something. So I, I'll do that. I, if I see something that I think is wrong, I'll question it. And if I've had to eat crow, you know, I've been wrong. Um, I admit it. <laughs> but at least I'm questioning it. If I accepted everything, then then what's the use? You know, then, then everything is real, right? Right. Um, God love you, Jim, for at least standing up and doing that. Yeah, you know, uh, but this goes back to the point we were talking about earlier. I mean, we're just, 
at a point where we're getting a fire hose of, of imagery that we don't know what's real, what's not. And, and there's just too much stuff out there. We're, we're being visually bombarded. Um, and most of it is crap. Right. Uh, and, and that's, that's what makes, you know, the other thing I was talking about, again, tangent time, think about the, you know, icons, uh, you know, if you go back in history, you know, flag, 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 uh, flag raising Iwo Jima, you know, um, assassination Viet Viet Cong Eddie Adams uh, you know um, the list go on I, yeah I'm just Nick Nick used to yeah yeah and then you, then think of recent history I mean the most recent ones like you know you know maybe uh, the firemen carrying the the body of the one year old in the Oklahoma bombing mm-hmm. um, and then you go even more recent um, start to try to think of anything digital that became an icon. And, and the only one that I came up with was with when the, they put the giant hefty bag on the, on the Abu Ghraib prisoners and he was standing with his arms out and that was taken by a soldier with a cell phone, but that became an iconic image because of, of the content. But because we're being bombarded with so much stuff now that we're losing icons. Right. That, 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 I'm trying to think of recent iconic images that, that that were so prevalent you know during the days of analog film um and i think part of the problem is that we just we're, we're just seeing so much crap i mean yeah think um, about it we had what 14 15 years of war in afghanistan and iraq and 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 just close your eyes and just try to think of one or two that you go okay that's iwo jima right, right? that's right. that's and normandy right you yeah. can't I mean, but, right but but the stories have changed, uh, but you know history hasn't. Nine um, eleven, it's the video that people remember now. The, the planes flying into the towers, and, right? Um, you know, but we've we've kind of lost, I think, and I could be wrong, you know. But again, I'm I'm talking out loud here. I kind of feel a loss of iconic phot- photography from from you know, even, even the Pulitzers. Uh, it, I can't you know, cite one off the top of my head that to me is like an iconic image, you know? So, okay. Then what do you think is, this is a beautiful segue for, for the students, the, the young photographers coming up and your Eddie Adams, you know, sweet spot from student to five years. What do you think makes a good photo to then a great photo? Yeah. I've been asked that like nine gazillion times and I've, I've been quoted as um, saying this, which I firmly believe, and um, you'll have to kind of like listen closely, and, and it's pretty simple. To me, for a picture to be effective, it has to be affective. So um, it's a strange word in the English dictionary, but effective we know. It, 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 there's cause and effect. So for a, a picture to be effective, it has to have caused you know, some sort of reaction. Um, uh, but for it to be truly a great picture it has to be affective, meaning it has moved you in some way. And it could be anything. It could be something that made you cry. It could be something that made you mad. It could be something that made you laugh. But it made you something. So for a picture to be effective, it has to be affective it has to cause some sort of response uh in you 
uh, visually stimulating, whatever it may be, because if it doesn't affect you in some way, you're just going to skip it. So that's how people read newspapers as well. And the old days, when people did read newspapers, not online, and magazines, the first thing they look at is the picture. And it's still the same today, whether you're on a website or whether it's the first thing you see. It's the picture. So if that picture doesn't move you, if that picture doesn't affect you in some way, then it hasn't served its purpose. So, And, and if it's a magazine, you're just going to skip right over, and then nobody's going to read those precious words that they get paid so much to do. Right. So – in simplest terms, when you're shooting something, try to um, – it, it, it all depends on what you're shooting mm-hmm. as well. But so, you know, I, I hate putting everything into one barrel. Um, but if you're sent out on an assignment, um, try to shoot, um, if it involves people, in a way um, – I used to describe it – not a fly on the wall, but be the paint on the wall that the fly lands on. You, you don't want to even be seen. So if you go into a situation, for example, uh, let's say you're sent out on an assignment to photograph this mom and her kids and whatever because they're having a hard time with COVID and learning or whatever. So when you walk into the apartment or the house and you get to meet the mom and kids, don't pick up the camera. Leave it around your neck. Talk to mom. Talk to the kids. Let them get comfortable with you before you even lift up the camera. Because you don't want them doing the peace sign and looking at the camera and knowing that they're being photographed. What you really want to do is capture a moment as it is in real life, as if you were not there. So it's kind of important that you, when you're put into a situation, that you try to be <laughs> as unseen as possible when it, in regards to a situation where you're photographing something like that. If you're going to photograph an event... Um, whether it's a speech or whether it's a sporting event, if it's entirely possible, and a lot of times it's not, go to where the photographers are not. Sometimes there's a pen. You know, in baseball, you're in the first base and the third base pens, and you can only shoot from a certain area, and if it's restricted, that's fine. But when you're not in there, go up in the stands and try to shoot something that the other guys are not. So at least you're going to have something that's going to be different than everybody else's. The last thing, and when you're shooting, is to try to shoot something. Don't approach photography, and I, and I get I get bashed for this a lot, but I'll say it. Don't shoot everything at eye level because that's how we experience life. We walk around, we see everything at eye level, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you shoot everything at eye level, you're not bringing anything new to the table. Get down in the grass, you know, get up on a, on a rafter. Find an angle that the normal human being would not be able to see, and that will make the picture intrinsically more interesting. So in the back of your mind someplace, you know, don't, you know, don't always think that you have to shoot it at eye level. Uh, looking for different angles can bring so much uh, to the plate visually, um, whether it's, you know, uh, how something looks compositionally, um, geographically, uh, geometrically, uh, just try to, you know, frame what you're shooting in a way that other people may not see uh, unless you're the the ant uh, or unless you're the fly. Um, Just try to bring something a little different to the table 
uh, when you shoot and, and, and that'll be appreciated. Um, the other thing is when you photograph anything, don't think the same camera with the same lens is going to be able to do one job. Um, always shoot for, for a story. Uh, so you need a, if you were thinking in old analog terms or even in, in website terms, in a newspaper or magazine, you know, you need the big opening picture. So the best ones that usually work is something wide and something that shows the environment and that can run big and still be effective. Uh, and then you need transitional pictures or, and, and things that help tell the story. But you'll also need details or what I call cameos, the dirt in the fingernails, the tying of the shoelaces, the really close-up things. Because those pictures can run small in a layout and still be effective. So I used to say there's a three-part process. The photographer shoots a story and the photo editor edits it. And then the art department Fs it up. Um, (laughs) But I I say that um, with a lot of respect for them, because if you don't provide the art department, all of those perspectives, then no matter what they do with the pictures, it's all going to look the same. They can't crop into stuff to make it look better. It's not, Mm -hmm. it has to be shot. right. It has to be shot loose. Um, and you have to have these transition. Then you have to give them all these different perspectives so they can do a layout justice to make your pictures look good and make people want to read it, um, which is really what it's all about. So those are just some some rough tips in general strokes uh, to, to how you approach photography. But, you know, Michelle McNally said it, you know, equally as well that that you have to have a passion for this you know you have to work hard and when you're done working hard you have to work even harder right you have to love what you're doing you have to put your heart and soul into it there's not going to be a whole lot of financial re- you know reward I'm, I'm i'm being honest it's going to be harder and harder to make a living doing this and other people are starting to do other things to supplement their income if you're lucky enough to get a staff job someplace kudos to you um, you know, if you're getting your 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 life insurance covered and all that other stuff. But if you're a freelancer, if you're out there on your own, you got all the stuff that you gotta consider. So you gotta be good. And you know, if your pictures are good, you'll get published. So, you know, you have to have that heart and desire and and an ethic to work hard because that's what's gonna pay off in the end. You know, right. Uh, yeah, you gotta put in that work. You gotta grind. Yeah, no, it, it, it's it's something that uh, may sound kind of simple, but um, and, and that falls true for any line of work, mm-hmm. not just photography. Jim, give me three shout outs, people or organizations you want to promote. Uh, the Eddie Adams Workshop would be number one because I, uh, I've been on their uh, faculty for, or, well, I, I was on their faculty for 30 straight years. Um, and you know, it's, I still am an advisor to them, but they've narrowed down their board to about five people to make it work better. Um, a lot of the th- a lot of that I think was caused um, uh, by the pandemic, but also just in in you know the pandemic the pandemic actually caused a lot of things to become the way they are, um, um, and and you know sometimes for the, f- people look at it different ways, but it tightened up a lot of ships, you know, um, oh, it did. And, and, you know, the Eddie Adams workshop was, was one, they didn't really need to have 17 board members, you know? Right. Um, so I, when, you know, I took the buyout from sports illustrated, 
um, I asked to leave the board uh, before they re redid the board. And a couple of years later, they redid the board and they only have like five people now, which kind of makes sense. Right. Um, but it's a really great organization. I mean, you know, I can't uh, praise them enough. Uh, 100 kids. I call them kids. Right. You know, student, 50 students and 50 professionals with five years or less experience earn their way, earn their way into the workshop um, by portfolio. Um, and it's tuition free. Mm -hmm. um, so, you, you know, you, you get in by your work. Isn't that uh, refreshing? Yes, um, absolutely. And, yeah. And then you don't have to worry about paying for it. You know, a lot of these other workshops, you got to pay thousands of dollars to get in. And it's, you know, if you got the money, you can get in. It's, it doesn't work that way with the Eddie Ams workshop. Right. So for, th for 30 years, you've gotten the cream of the crop, you know, the best kids in college and the best professionals that are starting out that need help. And, um, you know, before they went virtual, it was spending four days uh, up on a farm in, uh, you know, in the in the Catskills and um, being subjected to, um, you know, displays and, and talks and shooting and assignments and editing and mingling and um, just, you know, rubbing shoulders with the best people in the industry. And it was a, you know, is a great experience for anybody that's starting, but I think it's equally as exciting for the the staff. I used to love going to those, you know, thir for 30 years. Right. And helping somebody, you know, with their editing their work or, you know, just sitting in a corner talking about life. Um, mm -hmm. It's all good. And, and it's, a, it's a, you know, I've, I've looked at it as you know, a bit of a Zen way that I've been blessed, I think. Um, I know, I should say, rather than I think. Um, by this industry being very good to me. And this is my way of being good to the industry by giving back. And it's something that's very, very important to me. So yeah, number one, the Eddie Adams workshop would be okay. something that is near and dear to me. Um, I've talked about it, I think enough there, but um, also photo fusion, which is a, uh, another workshop down in uh, West Palm beach. Okay. Um, I did 25 years of that. It sounds like a prison sentence. Uh, <laughs> did 20, did 30 years at Eddie Adams and 25 at PhotoFusion. Um, no, 20, 25 years in a row for at PhotoFusion, which is a more of a geared towards an artistic community and but and and not quite as intense as the Eddie Adams workshop. But it was a nice um, uh, workshop to do. Um, uh, the former uh, picture editor of Time Magazine. Um, Arnold Drapkin called me, you know, 30 years ago and he said, Jim, I'm thinking about having, um, creating a workshop. And I said, geez, another workshop. <laughs> where, where? He said, Florida. And he said, I said, when? He says, in January. In January. So I said, what do you want me to do? Take out the trash? I'm in, you know, because <laughs> to me it was a, an, it was a nice break and I didn't know what it was going to be, but it actually turned out to be a lot of fun and, and creative. And um, I enjoyed that. So I did that for 25 years. Um, and third shout out would go to the Asian American Journalists Association. Uh, I've been an AJA member all my life. I've been a mentor for J camp, which is a called journalistic camp. And what they do is every year they uh, invite about 50 kids um, that are interested in journalism in all aspects uh, photography, writing, uh, video, whatever it may be. And they bring them to the city that they have their annual convention. Um, and they, uh, wherever the city is, they get, uh, you know, sponsors like, uh, CNN or 
major television network to allow the kids to come in and see what they do and if they're interested. And, uh, and then they bring in faculty as well. Um, and I used to, you know, be the person that would talk about photos. And, um, and it was uh, offered to, you know, 50 high school kids of color was the only um, requirement that were interested in journalism. And they would submit their work and be judged and earn their way in as well. And, um, and it's a, it was, you know, a, a, I was very proud to, to work um, with them on that. One kid um, <clears throat> in Minneapolis, no, I don't know, 15 years ago, saw my presentation. Uh, at that time, I guess I was working for SI. And he runs up to me afterwards and he says, I want to be the next photographer, staff photographer for Sports Illustrated. I said, okay, what's your name? I said, my name is Timmy. He says, Timmy, how old are you? I'm 15. I said, all right, Timmy, let me let me see what you got. So he, we sat down, he showed me his portfolio, and I gave it back to him. And I said, Timmy, I like this one picture. He says, the rest of it, you need some work. Um, and it kind of broke his heart a little bit, but then I stayed in touch with him, you know, and helped him with his portfolio. He wound up going to the University of Missouri and then Penn, uh, uh, UPenn. Um, wound up being the photo editor at the newspaper, uh, the school newspaper, um, and then became the youngest person ever accepted to the Eddie Adams workshop uh, and is now working as a photo editor at the Wall Street Journal. Um, good kid, a uh, really good kid. I call him a kid, you know, because I knew him when he was 15. Sure. Now he's you know, 30, um, but he's, he's doing bang up work at the, at the Wall Street Journal and uh, love him a lot. I think he got married. Um, but that's what gives me, you know, a thrill watching, you know, kids like that grow up and become what they want to become, you know, and knowing that I played a little bit uh, of a part of, of making that happen makes me feel really good, you know. So those are my three shout outs. Um, okay. Those are the things that are near and dear to me. But, you know, I the, you asked me, you know, I wanted to talk about in the beginning and basically the thing that I love doing is what I do now, which is editing. I love photo editing. To me, it's the, it's not a job. It's, it's a treasure hunt, you know? Um, and I love finding the gems and more importantly, getting other people to see those gems, you know, uh, cause if nobody else sees it, it might as well stay buried, you know? Um, so I love doing what I do. Um, it gives me great joy to, to see the work, um, either published or, you know, on, on, a on a website or in print, whatever it may be. But, uh, you know, I've been doing that all my life and, um, I still get a charge when it finally, it's like, you know, I, I kind of equate it to Christmas morning, you know, <laughs> and you wake up and you're waiting and then you, you know, open up a magazine or you open up a website and boom, you know, there's the gem you found, and it's it's just as exciting 50 years later. You know? <laughs> yeah, who who doesn't want a Red Rider BB gun at Christmas? You know, that's... <laughs> yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Are you still doing your services online? Because you were doing photo editing and some portfolio reviews. Yeah, um, I. The, the reason uh, I ask because I think right now some of the best photography is being made at universities of all places. I don't know if you yes. follow yes. that, like, but like if I do, I do. The UPPA is a yeah. wonderful organization. Yep. Yeah. And uh, I had the pleasure of speaking out there. It was a, a 
one of the highlights of my tour days, um, I got to speak with David Burnett, uh, Joe McNally, and David Hume Carley, mm-hmm. uh, and myself were all the guest speakers that week, um, the week that we did the UPPA tour. Um, and I agree, there's some, a lot of really good photography that's being done on the, on the you know, uh, collegiate level uh, and schools. Um, and uh, that organization, organization is terrific, uh, UPPA. Uh, and I hope that uh, they continue to have these um, seminars and workshops and, and inviting people like uh, those before me because uh, it's, a, it's a, a great way of sharing um, and I and I love doing the portfolio reviews. There was a picture I saw just the other day, and I was talking to one person. There were like eight people behind me, and I didn't know it. Um, and they're all like they're all like watching me as I'm you know like talking through this process with somebody, and and that's great. It's it's a way of you know of sharing. Um, and yes, um, to get to your point, I, I do have a website, jimcolton.com. Um, on there, you'll find um, that I do offer uh, services in, in photo editing, uh, whether you need some help with the contest, putting together a portfolio or a website. Uh, I also have a separate pottery site. So if you're interested. I saw that. <laughs> you never let that dream go, did you? <laughs> yeah, no. When I was when I was a when I was a senior in high school, they let you choose a major and I chose ceramics. Um, so I got to do that and I fell in love with it then and I keep doing it now. And um, it's, it's very therapeutic. Uh, I got to actually display some of my stuff down in, uh, at the Artie Gras one year as a, an emerging artist. I may have been the oldest emerging artist ever, but I got to display some of my pottery for the first time. I had never done that before. I even tried to sell anything before. So somebody said, just put it up online. So I did. Hey, and, you know, it's, it's never too late, Jim, to touch greatness in your pottery career. It's never too late. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway, that, that will remain a hobby. Uh, there's no way that I could ever do. I mean, the, the thing I attended was called Arty Gras and they have artists from all over the world that do these beautiful things that they, they take their stuff and they put it up in, in booths and they go from, from festival to festival to festival all over the United States. I could never do that. I, I just can't. I mean, it, it, it's beyond me how they do that. And I, you know, kudos to them because they're really great. Um, but that's a lot of work. And then you have to keep up with the inventory. You know, <laughs> I have maybe 40 or 50 pieces online that are still available, but I, I actually made 70 pieces for that show, um, which took me almost a year to do. Um, <laughs> But I don't think I could ever, you know, do that kind of production. Um, to me, it's a it's a great outlet. And uh, uh, anyway, so yeah, my website has services that I will offer for, you know, like I said, putting together, you know, a selection for a contest or even the ADM's contests uh, or uh, entries if you want some help with. Yes, I've seen a few. I've seen important. a few of those entries. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's important I to get of, somebody's eyes on your stuff. Yeah, um, I, I have. I also did um, one of the things I did was a, a photo editing 101 thing uh, that was on my t- grand tour when I was doing that a while ago. And one of the my <laughs> pieces of advice that usually got the biggest laugh was like, um, yes, you can show you should show your portfolio to as many people as possible because the more people you show it to the greater the number. And then you'll get some, you know, averages of what people like, what people don't like, but don't ask your mom because your mom is going to like every picture, you know, so find people that are in the business 
um, other photographers, photo editors. It can be journalists uh, um, or, you know, even lay people. But family is usually not a good idea to show pictures to because they're going to like everything. Mom, mom is going to like everything. And then you're not going to get any help there. Yeah. Um, that's a bad choice having mom look at your work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, but seriously, uh, it's good to show, you know, if you're concerned about um, an image or concerned about uh, a particular portfolio, to, if you show them to 10 people and eight of them say, I'm not sure about this picture, then there might be something worth considering about taking it out because it's an old credo, but it's the truth. You know, your portfolio is only as good as your weakest picture. So if you got a clunker in there, that's what people are going to remember. And you have right. to make sure that you have clunkers in there. So photographers are very attached to their work, and they're the worst editors. All right? So I, you've heard this from me, and I'm sure you heard it from a lot of other people. And I'll say this again. Photographers make the worst editors, and editors make the worst photographers. All right? I can vouch for that. I was terrible as a photographer, but I knew that. You know, I had a love for this business and my talents were better served at the other end of the loop. Photographers think they're, you know, editing is easy. But once they get involved in having made tough decisions about things that they're very attached to, it gets harder and harder. So show it to a professional that is not attached to the story and doesn't care what you think about what you do to it, you know, but is going to look at it and make a judgment based strictly on photographic content. Right. Not on emotional content. And that will help. So, yeah, anybody that's out there that's trying to put stuff together, show it to as many people as you can. You'll start to get an aggregate about, you know, what is working and what isn't um, and try to leave your family out of it. Right. I'd be a fool if I didn't bring up this wonderful thing you had years ago, the the photo journal. That was oh. awesome. <laughs> it was it was it was it was this, it was, you were doing a, a, a podcast every month with these wonderful people. It was yeah. so beautiful. I loved that. Yeah. yeah. I, I, um, again, that was one of my babies, just like, you know, the pictures of the month is my baby. I, I've given birth to a lot of projects. <laughs> photo journal, uh, photo journal was originally a freestanding photo essay that I convinced Newsweek to do when I worked for them. Mm -hmm. So we did things like the Burn Center in Pittsburgh by Lynn Johnson. We did uh, the M Mount Kilauea. Uh, well, I mean, we were trying to be National Geographic, you know, and doing right. freestanding free photo essays within the magazine. So um, I took the name um, and just created a photo journal for the NPPA originally. And uh, what it was, for the people that don't know, and, and that's uh, a link um, is on my website as well, um, that it was interviews with photographers that were doing wonderful things in my mind at the time that I was writing them. Mm -hmm. So um, what I did was I would contact photographers and, and tell them I wanted to talk to them or send them an email with a list of questions or speak with them and, and then get a selection of their work and get their thoughts and then put it down on a, on a, you know, in a sheet and, when I did it for the NPPA, it was fine. But when it started, it was the NPPA's version of a website was, you know, all text and then three by fives that didn't expand, that didn't do anything. It was just really ugly. Um, so I, I did the photo journal with them for, I don't know, maybe a year and a half or maybe a little more. And it, and I got kind of fed up with the, with the layout saying, you know, 
guys, it's, it's not rocket science. I can go on to, you know, Squarespace and design something that <laughs> will look times better than what you guys are doing with the pictures. And you're the National Press Photographers Association. So come on. And they didn't want to change it. So I uh, did exactly what I said. I went on to Squarespace uh, and I had a little help with my son, who's a, you know, really good graphic designer and created Photo Journal uh, on my own without the NPPA. And I showed it to them and they didn't want to change it. So I contacted Scott McKiernan at Zuma and asked him if he wanted to uh, take it on. Uh, as part of the Zuma thing, because I was doing a little bit of work for him. Uh, and he said, sure. So uh, you'll see it both as photo journal and you'll also see it as Z photo journal. But the difference is the latter half, there were 63 of them. So that's over a period of, I don't know, three or four years, maybe five years. Right. And the latter half or latter two thirds really look good because <laughs> – um, <laughs> It's I designed them. I chose the pictures. I did the captions. I did the expanding boxes. I did the galleries. I did the whole nine yards. I was a one man show and I did the interviews. I did the quotes. I did the, the layout. I did everything. Uh, and it was it was a labor of love. And um, but I, I did it for five years or four years or whatever it was. And, um, you know, it, it got to a point where, like anything else, I wanted to leave it, uh, you know, while it was good. Uh, that I didn't want to, you know, not that I couldn't sustain it, but um, I was doing other things. And, you know, I, I started working uh, for Zuma, doing, you know, some work for them. Uh, there are pictures of the day site and then their Instagram site and the pictures of the month thing, which I created. So all of those things were taking more time. And um, so it, it, I put it on the on the back burner. And, you know, at, at some point I might reinstate it. I'm, at some point I might collect all 63 of them and publish a book. I don't, I don't know. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll see. But yeah, I had so much fun because it was great people like Michael Williamson and, and talking to people that were, you know, like so devoted and so, and, and editors as well as photographers and people that were just doing cool stuff. And, and then, you know, what I love was finding the people that, you know, the under the ra radar, you know, a guy that went to uh, Rob Hammer, um, mm -hmm. uh, went to photographed barbershops in all 50 States. Um, and it was just like this really cool collection of images and, and, you know, um, it was just fun stuff that, that nobody knew about, you know, but I, I loved the pictures and, and I got to talk to him and I got them published. And so the, the things that were flying under the radar were equally as fun to work on as, as the things like Daniel Barrow Hulak when he was doing Ebola, you know, uh, and, and each one of these things were, I, you know, I tried to be timely, but I also wanted to be creative and I also wanted to have, the photographers to have a voice um, to explain what, you know, floats their boat, but also to make their work sing. Um, and so creating the, the galleries, the way that I did um, where you could be sitting on a, on a iPhone and looking at them, but you could be sitting on a 30 inch monitor and watching them, you know, and blowing them up to fill your screen. And they held up because I did everything in high res makes a huge difference, you know? So yeah. the pictures, great the, the the interviews were a lot of fun um i really really enjoyed that you know who knows i might reinstate it at some point but you know um right now i'm i'm working every day uh, monday to friday um all morning for zuma putting up their pictures of the day uh and then putting up a selection of instagram stuff for them 
And then my baby, uh, the other baby I gave birth to, the Pictures of the Month, um, which uh, is the pictures-of-the-month.com. I invite anybody to go look at that specifically for this month, um, which is a, a collection of only material out of Ukraine. And uh, the other half was material from uh, the Beijing Olympics. Uh, so uh, it's a really good example of how photography can be just as powerful in a journalistic and news sense as it can be in a sports sense. Um, and it's a, it's a, it's a fun mix. I really had a lot of fun putting that one together. So uh, the pictures of the month.com go take a look uh, and, and see if you like it and uh, share it. If you do, um, Absolutely. it's, it's a, it's a combination. It's a, the other is hmm, another thing that you don't know about me. Um, I'm, I'm also, um, a musician. Uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say a professional musician, but, uh, I grew up playing the organ. Uh, when I was 11, I had a Wurlitzer that was bought to me uh, for me by my dad when he was drunk at Christmas. <laughs> and <laughs> I learned how to sight read and write. And so I've composed a lot of my own music and I started playing the piano, et cetera, et cetera. So music is a huge part of my life. And the pictures of the month, is a collection of my edits of whatever is going on in that particular month, but it's also my selection of music um, uh, from a variety of sources. And for me, it's a combination. It's a little bit old school, um, dog and pony kind of, where it's just background music and pictures. And it's sequenced, uh, which is very, very important, sequencing, uh, with this music in the background, and that's all it is. Just sit back. If you if you have the ability to look at it on a 30-inch monitor, please do, because that's how good the pictures are, and they will hold up, um, and they look beautiful. And then so I, I when I create this every month, I put as much effort in finding a, the appropriate score to accompany the, the images as I, um, as I do with the photography. Wow. I want to grow up and be Jim Colton when I get old. Jeez. Wow, <laughs> it's a lot of fun. I, I'm, I, you know, I, I said earlier in the broadcast, I, I really do feel like I'm blessed. I, uh, I've been in this business of fifty years, and and I'm still having fun every morning uh, and creating stuff, and uh, that will never leave me. And you know that that uh, Christmas morning every day when I look at pictures, man, that's uh, there's no greater no greater gift than that. Well. I can't thank you enough for your time. I can't thank I can't thank you enough for those fifteen years when you were at SI and I would get that phone call Sunday <laughs> Sunday morning and you would say, You got one and I'd be oh, You got one. Yeah, yeah. that a boy and I'd tell the wife and she'd be happy, whatever. But I mean the, to hear your voice like now, like I mean, I haven't seen you since Annenberg ten years ago, but to hear your voice brings that back that you know getting that on a phone line and hearing you call and say hey it's jim how you doing seven in the morning i got you got one i can't i can't thank you enough for what you do in this have done in this industry what you're still doing in this industry working those workshops and and providing just a massive amount of knowledge to these kids that need it uh you're a special human being uh, I can't thank you enough for the, the two hours that we've talked. You are absolutely, Jim, an, a gem in this industry and a beautiful human being. Well, thank you for that, Matt. Um, I really appreciate it, and I enjoyed our chat. Uh, and I hope, uh, you know, whoever has been listening in has picked up a few things here and there. And 
Um, anybody has any questions that they would like to ask me, I'm easily found. Uh, there's a, you know, um, link in the in my website as well. But I'm I'm old school. Uh, people laugh at me for this, but I was able to I was able to get my name at AOL. So my email is Jim Colton at AOL. So there. Uh, so anybody that wants to drop a line, you know, put Matt Brown in the in the header so I know, and I, I will answer. Them. And uh, Jim Colton at AOL. Uh, there's a handful of you left, Jim, on that AOL. There are. They're, there you are. They're waiting to shut it down, but you keep answering <laughs> the emails. Oh, uh, you're the best, sir. Thank you so much for your time. All right, man. You take good care of yourself. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Jim Colton. Please click the like button if you enjoyed the episode and subscribe to the show. That always helps. Please leave a review if you enjoyed what you heard. And remember to follow the podcast on Instagram. You can find all the past shows on the website, jessicagoodconversation.com. Thank you for listening.